Well, we are talking about Job this morning, and it is a joy for me as I was writing my notes. At first I thought, oh, I I don't think I have that much to say. And then when I started to finish the notes and print them out, I thought, "Uh uh-oh, this is three times the normal amount that I have to say. What am I going to do? You know, I just, well, talk faster, I guess, or something. I'm just kidding. No, just kidding. So uh, we... This is such a rich book, and, and let me just preface everything, and then we're going to pray by, by saying that there are just so many lessons, uh, individual insights and truths, and we just need to kind of think through them and meditate on them, even as they come together to talk about the rightness of God. And so I, I just am joyful to be with you, to share with you this morning what I have been learning in the book of Job. And with that, let's begin with the word of prayer, shall we? Lord, we are so thankful for this book. It is ancient words, but they are ever true, and they are powerful, changing mind and soul, talking of eternity, setting up for the gospel, providing consolation and insight, providing conviction and humility, crushing pride and exalting you. And so, Lord, may this time, above anything, Be that which magnifies you, which puts you on display in your wisdom and in your majesty and in your kindness and in your goodness and in your sovereignty. May you be honored. And may we leave learning not just the facts of this book, but how it amplifies God and his Son. May that be the case. And may we say in the end, you are always right. And that is what distinguishes you from anyone else. You are always right, and you make right. Help us to cherish these truths for your glory, and in your name we pray. Amen. Well, why the book of Job? Sometimes we might think, well, we would study the book of Job because It gives tremendous insight about suffering, or it talks about complex philosophy and wisdom, and we could plumb the depths of that. Speaking of depths, it has some of the most beautiful, some of the most elaborate, some of the most lofty descriptions of God in all of Scripture. And then on top of that, you can talk about a Leviathan. Who wouldn't want to talk about a dinosaur? And so there's lots of cool things to talk about in the book of Job. All of that is true, and there is more. But if you ask me, why did you, Abner, get and begin to study the book of Job, my personal reasons for doing so are a little bit different than anything that I listed above. At the time, I was a new professor, and I needed to teach an elective, a a study of a Bible book. And I was talking with my boss, Dr. Halstead, and I asked him, well, what book should I teach? And I said, I'd love to teach something on Genesis or Exodus or Isaiah or Psalms. And Dr. Halstead said to me, well, I'm sorry, Abner, all those are reserved for other professors. You can't teach them. (laughs) And I said, well, maybe if it's not the Old Testament, maybe something in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, or Romans? He says, oh, I'm sorry, Abner. I'm looking at the list, and they're all taken. They're all reserved by other professors. And this began a discussion where we went through all the books of the Bible and the table of contents. (laughs) And we went through 64 books. And then the 65th book was Song of Songs, which was off the table. And so the only book left was Job. That's what happened. And so I said, well, I think in light of this, I'd like to select Job as the book. (laughs) 
And Dr. Halstead looked at me and said, Abner, that is a magnificent choice. I learned how kind of Calvinism works in that experience. Now, that may be how I begun studying the book of Job, but that's certainly now how it ended. I began to dig into this book, and growing up, I had always thought that Job was probably around five chapters, because you got two chapters where Job suffers, you got one chapter where his friends are really, really bad, and then you got two more chapters where God confronts him, and it's the end. But then, upon studying it, I realized it's not five chapters, it's 42 Why is it so long? Well, there are lots of reasons why, because this is a very deep book. This is a very deep book. It not only talks about suffering, we often think about that, but it talks about wisdom. Have you heard the phrase, and I'm sure you have, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And you say, I know where that comes from. That comes from Proverbs 1, and you are right, but you are wrong. It actually comes from Job. Solomon is quoting from the book of Job. In Proverbs. If you really want to know the reason why the fear of the Lord is wisdom, you have to read the book of Job. Job talks not only about suffering and wisdom, it talks about the heights and the depths of God. It even talks about the gospel. And it does all of this, and it does more in really profound ways. And so this book has become very dear to me. In fact, I am at the point of working on a commentary on Job with Austin Duncan. They pair a nerd with a preacher. He's the preacher, and I'm the nerd. And I, and I help him out, and he, and he helps me out, and we write a book together. And it's been very fun for me. Austin might have a different opinion, but it's been very fun for me. <laughs> and in any case, I, I suspect that some of you here might be like me, that we didn't have much of a background in this book But there is so much to discover, and I'd like you to join with me this morning in discovering and seeing the profound truths, the life-changing and transforming truths from this book. I want to expand our understanding on Job, and that is the goal for this morning. And that really begins with the context of the book. It really begins even with the date of the book. Now, sometimes when people talk about the chronology of the Bible, the dating of the Bible, when something was written, we are a little bit skeptical and we kind of think, does this really matter? Is this really significant? Is this really practical? Well, in this case, it really is. It really is. It's very, very useful. You see, Job, I would argue, is the first book of the Bible ever written. It's the first book of the Bible ever penned chronologically. Now, to be clear, Genesis obviously, obviously covers what happened first in the history of this world. It's in the beginning. But when I mean that Job was the first book written, I mean that it was the first book ever penned, that it was the first book ever written down, that it was written down even before the book of Genesis. In other words, if you read the Bible chronologically in the order that the books were written in, the books were physically composed in, what book should you read first? Job. In other words, let me put it this way, when Moses wrote Genesis, what book might he have possessed and was reading as he wrote the book of Genesis? And the answer would be the book of Job. This is important to understand the date of the book, and at this point we need to ask, well, how do we know that Job was written first? How do we know that fact? Well, we could point out that the language of the book is 
ancient. We could point out that Job uses what we call ancient currency, not only that it emphasizes animals for trade and commerce, but even the kind of denominations of currency that it uses are only found in the patriarchal period, nowhere else. It has ancient currency. It has a lack of an official sacrificial system. In fact, there's even a lack of mention of the nation of Israel. And on top of that, the genre of the book is one that matches writings only found in the patriarchal period. And so you got ancient language, ancient genre, ancient currency. This is the early book. This is the first book. It actually predates the official founding of the nation of Israel. This is the first book. It comes before the official founding of the nation of Israel. And that matters. And that matters. Like I said, if you were going to read the Bible chronologically, you would have to read the book of Job first. That means this. Job is the introduction to the Bible. Job is the introduction to the Bible. It's like the Hobbit with Lord of the Rings. You've got to read this first to understand everything that is going to happen. And, and you could put it this way. If, and I said that if Moses was writing Genesis and Job came first, he might have had Job in hand. And if that is the case, and since that is somewhat the case, then Job forms the foundation for everything you want to know about in Scripture. So let me put it this way. Don't we want to know what the Bible is all about, why it matters, how it all ties together? Well, you got to then read the introduction to the Bible. That's the book of Job. Job puts everything in together. Job tells you why you're reading what you're reading. But on top of that, it doesn't just tell you what the Bible's all about. It tells you why you need a Bible. Job, as an introduction, tells you why you need a Bible. The question of why do you need a Bible is a powerful and important question. In evangelism and apologetics, people say, why do I need to read the Bible? Well, why does this Bible matter? Well, Job provides a profound and compelling answer to that question. But it's not just for apologetics and evangelism. It is for us personally as well. It is in our private life. Because when we understand why you need a Bible, why you have to have this book, why that matters, that's a powerful motivator to read the Bible. Even more, when you know the answer, the real answer to why you need the Bible, it actually shapes and influences how you're going to approach the Bible. How you're going to approach the Bible. Is this optional? Is this nice? Well, what happens if it's necessary? And what happens if it's so necessary for certain reasons that you need to read it in the fear of the Lord? You will be influenced by the question of why you need a Bible. And Job, as the perfect introduction to the Bible, provides that. And so we're talking about chronology, and we're wondering, is this practical? Does it matter? It sure does. It puts Job as the first book of the Bible, as the introduction of the Bible, and that makes Job the pivotal book for the Bible. It makes Job a pivotal book for the Bible. So how does then Job work? If it's going to launch and introduce the entire Bible, how does it do that? What is Job all about? And our knee-jerk reaction is to say, well, Job is all about suffering. But remember, suffering mainly is talked about in the first two chapters. The first two chapters of 42 chapters. There are 40 other chapters that talk about other things. And so maybe, just maybe, the book of Job mainly concentrates on something else besides suffering. Because it talks about something else for 
40-something chapters. And here's what we're going to learn. Suffering is the platform in asking bigger questions. Suffering is the window to asking deeper, profound, fundamental questions about God and suffering and life and death. And isn't that the case? When we suffer, don't we start to ask the bigger questions of life? because we are suffering, because it causes us to think and contemplate on those deeper issues. That's exactly what happens in Job. And all of that, all of that coalesces around, all of those deeper issues provoked by suffering coalesce around the question, is God right? Is God right? The rightness of God. In fact, the word right in all of its forms, righteousness, justify, things of that nature, it occurs more in Job than any other book of the Bible, including Romans. The word right occurs more in Job than any other book of the Bible, including Romans. In fact, I make a joke with my students that if you had a time machine and you went back in time carrying the book of Romans, or your whole Bible, that's fine too, but carrying the book of Romans with you and you gave it to Job, after Job would ask the preliminary questions of like, how do I know you're not an alien? How does time travel work? And on top of that, you give him the book of Job and, or the book of Romans, and, and he says, you know, how do I know this is really from God? And, and you show that that's the case. After he gets through all that and he reads the book of Romans, he would cry and give you a hug because Romans answers every question Job has. Romans answers every question that Job has. Now, to be fair, if you had a time machine and you went back in time and did all that, you would also ruin redemptive history because the whole point... <laughs> of Job is to set up for Romans. So that kind of becomes counterproductive if you go back in time. But in any case, here's the point. Job is about the rightness of God. And Romans is going to be the answer that we are going to see, but we need to develop all that. And so Job is about this reality. God is right. No matter what, in this sinful world where there is so much evil and so much suffering, God is right. He is resiliently right. And in light of this, the book of Job is actually arranged around two courtroom trials. Two trials, which kind of makes sense when we're talking about who's right and who's wrong. We have trials. We have courtroom scenes. And the two scenes, the two courtroom scenes are found, one in heaven in the first couple chapters of Job and one on earth for the remainder of Job. One in heaven and one on earth. And if you establish that God is right in heaven and you establish that God is right on earth, then he is right everywhere, in every place, in every way, and in every time. And this isn't just going to be an assertion. This isn't just going to be a conclusion. The proof that God is right is going to be sophisticated, and it's not just going to be sophisticated. It's going to be life-transforming. There are a lot of lessons to be learned in the process, but all of those lessons that I hope we will delve into a little bit, all of those lessons will come together to prove this. God is right in heaven and on earth. He is right in every way. He is right in every time, and he makes right. That is the point of the book, and that is how we're going to approach it. So with this in mind, let's talk about the trial in heaven. Let's talk about the trial in heaven, Job 1 through 2. Open your Bibles to Job chapter 1 if 
if that's accessible to you. And in Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we have the introduction to Job, and Job is portrayed on one hand as a historical person, obviously, because he is. He's Job. That's his name. But on the other hand, he is portrayed as an everyman. There was a man in the land of Uz named Job. He, his story, his life, and the issues raised by him, they are real and they are historical, but the issues raised are not just about him. They are the questions every person should be asking, and really his name helps us to know what the questions are. The word Job, the name Job, means enemy. It means enemy. And the question is this, who's the enemy? Is it Job? Is Job the enemy? Are his friends the enemy? And you might say, of course they are. Well, okay, maybe that's true. But who's the real enemy? Is God the enemy? Who is right and who is wrong? That's the question. And that's going to be the question, especially since we know suffering is about to take place. Suffering is about to take place. How can God be right in suffering? And with this in mind, the author of Job takes us into the heavenly court in verse 6 and says, is God right in heaven? Is God right in heaven? We're asking the question, is God right? Well, let's break this down. Is God right in heaven? And the proof of God's rightness in heaven revolves around this issue. God will show that he is right in heaven by virtue of his sovereignty and his sovereign purposes. God will show that he is right in heaven by virtue of his sovereignty and his sovereign purposes. And everything in this opening scene in Job chapter 1 announces that agenda announces that topic. In verse 6, notice this. It talks about how the sons of God presented themselves before the Lord. And at this moment, we need to clear up a misconception. I think sometimes in Job, we believe that Satan, he waltzes into heaven and has a challenge for God. But that's not the case here. You see, God is sovereign because he summoned Satan. Because he summoned Satan. Notice the language of verse 6. It says on that day, the, the sons of God came to present themselves to Yahweh. The language of present here is one of a court appearance. When you go to court, when you appear in court, you do not appear because you just waltz on in and think it's a nice thing to do to show up. You are summoned. You are, quote unquote, invited. You are also known as demanded to come into court. Satan doesn't take the initiative to go to heaven. God says, this is by invitation only, come now. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He's not only sovereign in the summons. Notice this, verse 7, do you see how God says to Satan? And then in verse 7, Satan answers. And then in verse 8, God says to Satan. And then in verse 9, Satan answers. God never answers Satan. Satan always answers God. Throughout this entire narrative, God always speaks. He never answers. Why? Because he never loses control. He never has to react to anyone. He is never caught off guard. He is always initiating. He is always setting the agenda. He is always speaking. And he must be spoken back to, not a reactionary component. He is totally sovereign. And on top of that, notice this. What does God say? He says to Satan, verse 8, Have you set your heart on Job, my servant? We sometimes think, and this goes back to our misconceptions of Job, that Satan is the one that had the idea to test Job. 
that it was Satan's idea. What do we see here? Who's the one who instigated this whole trial? God, because he is sovereign, because he is in control. Everything in this trial announces that God is in absolute control, and that is how he will prove that he is right. Now, having said this, we can also see within verse 8, God's sovereign purpose. Do you notice how God talks about Job? He says, have you set your heart on my servant, Job? Job is portrayed as serving God. Job is portrayed as one that God uses. And in the context of Job being upright, in the context of Job being one who fears God, the way that he serves him is a demonstration of God's saving and redeeming work. That the work of Genesis 3.15 to preserve a line of God's chosen people unto striking the serpent's head, that God has done that. God has a sovereign purpose. God has a sovereign purpose of maintaining Job. And the question is this, is God's redeeming work, is God's delivering work, is God's transforming work legitimate? That's the question. Is it going to be sound or is it superficial and can be broken by, say, taking everything away from Job? That's what Satan, the accuser, suggests. That Job isn't really transformed He's not really in this for the right reasons. He's, his reasons are selfish. His reasons reflect the low view of God. And if you take everything away from him, then he'll break. Because the transformation, the deliverance wasn't real to begin with. Because God really can't do that. And so God allows for this to take place. God allows for this to take place. And here's just a further demonstration of his sovereignty. Notice, God says, here is what you can do, Satan. All that he has is in your hand. God is sovereign in what he allows to happen. But also, notice this, God tells him, but you can't touch his life. God is sovereign in what he doesn't allow to happen. God is sovereign both in what he allows to happen and what he does not allow to happen. And on top of that, God is totally sovereign over Satan because what do we see in the very end? Satan goes out from the presence of the Lord. He goes out in obedience. He goes out in obedience. God is totally sovereign. Now the question is, are his sovereign purposes unbreakable? His sovereign purposes of redemption, are they unbreakable? And so Satan now begins to test Job. And in doing so, he desires to frame God. He desires to frame God. Satan has a very clear purpose in these trials. Notice in verse 15, it may say in your translation that the Sabians attacked Job's servants. But in Hebrew, it says this, the Sabians fell upon Job's servants, presumably with the sword, which is an idiomatic way of saying they attacked. But notice it says they fell upon them. And in verse 16, notice this fire of God, what does it do? It fell from heaven. Did you hear the word fall again? And then in verse 19, when there's this great whirlwind that attacks the house that Job's children are in, what happens? It strikes the house so that the house fell. Do you hear the word fall, fall, fall over and over and over in this text? What is Job's goal? What does he want? What is Satan's goal rather? What does he want Job to do? He wants Job to fall. That's the goal. If Job falls, Satan believes, I won. I won. I got Job to break. His goal is to see Job fall. 
And he frames God in the process. You can see it a variety of ways. You can see it in the timing. Do you see how Job receives the news of one disaster after the other immediately? While the one messenger was speaking, another messenger comes. And while the other messenger is speaking, another one comes to deliver this catastrophic news. The timing, how can you time that so perfectly? It must be from God. Satan frames God. He doesn't just frame God in the timing. He frames God in the intensity. Notice the language of verse 16. Fire of God fell from heaven. Everyone assumes this has got to be from God. On top of that, when you have this wind, which usually blows from one direction to another, in this case, the wind strikes four corners of the house. How can you have that kind of catastrophe where wind doesn't act like wind? It must be supernatural. It must be from God. Satan frames God. By the way, just a side note. Some people wonder, what was the weather like when Job suffered all of this. You know, was it a, you know, in Hollywood, it would be a rainy day and thunder and lightning and, and Joe would be out in the mud and all this kind of stuff. Well, based upon the data, if the wind is coming from the direction that the Bible says, it was a warm day. It was a sunny day, clear sky. And that just adds to the torture of what is taking place. In any case, Satan is framing God. And on top of that, Satan frames God in the ordering of the events. Because what is most dear to Job? It's not his stuff. It's his family. And who was attacked last? Job's children. And so this is Satan's masterpiece. This is Satan's masterpiece of framing God, of causing the worst possible test, of causing the worst possible damage. And his goal is clear. He wants Job to what? Fall. He wants Job to fall. Satan is testing God's sovereignty, and he's testing his sovereign purposes, and now all eyes are on Job. Because Job's reaction is going to determine whether someone is right and someone is wrong. Job's response is going to tell everything, and God has set it up that way. And here is what is absolutely fascinating. We read in verse 20, Job gets up. This shows his intentionality. What he's going to do is deliberate. It's, it's not accidental. It's not random. It is intentional. And what does he do? He tears his garment. One of the reasons you tear your garment is you're demonstrating on the outside what you feel like on the inside. And he says, basically, it feels like my soul is ripped out from me. He feels intense distress. On top of that, he shaves his head. He shaves his head. Why would you shave your head in the way that this text is describing? It's because you feel more dead than alive. You are totally devastated. You are totally devastated. And notice the next phrase. After he shaves his head, he what? He falls to the ground. He falls. I mean, Satan, what did he want Job to do? He wanted him to fall. And Job has fallen. And so it looks like he's defeated. It looks like he's defeated. But in the midst of distress, in the midst of devastation, in the midst of defeat, what does Job do? Last phrase, he worships. And here's what we observe. You can have distress in your life, and you can feel devastated, more dead than alive, and it can even look like you're defeated. But if you declare that God is right, heaven wins. Heaven wins, and God uses your weakness for his glory. That's exactly what happens in this text. The moment Job opens his mouth, let's use a baseball metaphor. It's three strikes and you're out. 
And Job says, naked I came out of the womb, naked I will return. Satan had accused Job of being selfish, of elevating himself way too highly, but that's not the case. Satan, you're wrong. That's strike one. Satan also accused Job of viewing God as lowly, but what does, what does Job say? The Lord gives. He recognizes that he is undeserving and that everything God has done is a gift. It is a grace, and therefore God has the absolute right to what? Take away. He has the highest view of God. Satan, you're wrong. That's strike two. And what is Satan's final words? Job will curse you to your face, God. And what does Job say? May God be blessed forevermore. Satan, you are wrong down to the very word you used. You are down to that level of detail, three strikes, and you are out. Job proves. Job proves God is right. And God uses Job in his weakness. In fact, Job allowing us to see and being transparent about his suffering demonstrates the power of God's delivering work more. Why? Because it shows it is unbreakable. It shows that even when you are distressed and even when you are devastated and even when it looks like you are defeated, God's purposes cannot be broken. They are absolutely resilient. They are unassailable. They are unstoppable. That's what it proves. And so, brothers and sisters, we learn already from Job's response that we don't have to mask our pain. God receives glory as we are honest about the hurt that we receive and fully honest that his strength and his grace is sufficient. It magnifies how powerful he is, and heaven wins when we say that, just as they won now with Job. And God really knows he won. This is great because God invites Satan up for another chat in Job 2. I love this. You can't see it in English, but in Job chapter 2 in Hebrew, the words are actually shortened. But we do this in English. We say, instead of do not, we say don't. We make contractions. And why do you make contractions in English? To say something faster to say something faster. And God says to Satan, Satan, where have you been? Around. Oh, around, huh? Have you listened? Have you watched what happened with Job? Yes. God is rubbing it in Satan's face. I am right, and you are wrong. But Satan has one more trick up his sleeve, and, and he says it. He says, there is still one more thing. He still has his flesh. There is one thing left remaining. And so God in his sovereignty says, you can, te- you can test that too. But here's what we learn. Job passes that test. Job passes that test. And at this moment, Satan himself said, there was still just one more thing. There's just one more factor. There's only a single remaining item left to do. And so with Job passing that test, The accuser has no more accusations to make. God is unquestionably right in heaven. There are no more questions. There are no more reservations. There are no more qualifications. God is right. And there is no question about it. He is right in heaven. He is finally vindicated. He is sovereign. And his sovereign purposes will stand. And heaven 
knows it. Heaven knows it. So that's the trial in heaven. But we know that there's going to be a trial on earth. And that's where the book takes us, to the trial on earth. And you might say, well, what is this trial on earth about? We know what the trial in heaven was about. It was about God's sovereignty and his sovereign purposes and whether they would fail or not. But what's the trial on earth going to be about? What's the proof that God is right on earth going to be about? Well, that's where Job's friends come in. They help to introduce us to what is going on. And at first, in Job chapter 2, the very end of it, verse 11, you can see his three friends heard and they wanted to comfort him. It sounds so good. But then in verse 12, they lift up their eyes from afar And it says this, they do not recognize Job, and they wept. This is a weird phrase. Think about this. If you don't recognize somebody at the grocery store, if you don't recognize somebody, even here at Grace Church, do you just start weeping? (laughs) Oh, I didn't see you. Ah! You know, like, I mean, what, what is going on here? This doesn't make any sense. If you don't recognize somebody, if you don't notice them, you don't do anything because you didn't see them. That's the point. So why are Job's friends not recognizing him and then bawling up in tears? It's weird. There's another thing too. Here Job is at the end of his suffering. He has declared God is right, but he is in intense pain. And so he is sitting in silence on the ash heap outside of the city. And what does it say that the friends do? They tear their garments. They throw dust in the air and they start screaming at the top of their lungs. You know what that scene is called? That's called awkward. (laughs) Here is a guy sitting in total silence, and you have three friends dancing around him, tearing their garments, throwing dust up in the air. This is what I warn seminarians about. When you go to a funeral, when you go to a time of mourning, you not only mourn with people, you mourn the way they mourn. Don't be that guy who's in total hysterics when everyone's quiet. You just stand out, and it's awkward. But why would Job's friends do this? Why would they not really care about Job? Because they don't care about Job. Who do they care about? Themselves. This is why they disassociate with Job. This is why they don't recognize him. Because they don't want anything to do with Job. Why? Because they are afraid. What are they afraid about? What could happen to Job could happen to me. And how do I protect myself from that? How do I figure God out so that I would never allow that to happen? That's the question they're asking. And the earthly courtroom is about this then. Why does God do what he does? And how is that good? Why does God do what he does? And how is that good? Is God right in why he does what he does and whether or not it is good? And The friends aren't the only ones asking the question. Job himself asked this question in Job chapter 3. In fact, the entire structure, the entire structure of chapter 3 is arranged around the word why. He just says over and over and over again, why, why, why. He knows God has a right to do it. He's not questioning God's right or prerogative to do what he does. He's wondering, God, do you really have a reason behind this? And is it a good reason? That's what he's wondering. Now, having said this, there are two observations I want to quickly make about Job's speech in Job 3. Here's the first one. Job says, God, I just don't understand your reasoning here. I just don't understand your purposes. Why 
would you preserve me? And it says this, why would you preserve me? Not only verse three, on the day of when I was given birth to, but on the night that I was conceived. Now remember, when you are born is not the same thing as when you are conceived. There are about nine months of difference between the two. Here Job affirms in Job 3.3 that conception is a miraculous act because God has to sustain it. Here Job confirms in Job 3.3 that his personhood and God's relationship with him and God's protection of him began at conception. Life begins in that sense at what? Conception. Job 3.3 is actually a very powerful argument of how the Bible perceives personhood at conception and thereby why abortion is wrong. It starts in the first book of the Bible. But on top of that, Job starts to list out, God, you preserved me from the natural and the supernatural forces that could have taken away my life from conception. You did it at birth. You did it when I was growing up. You did it into my adulthood. All of these different things could have happened to me. I could have died a thousand different ways, and the darkness could have consumed me a million different ways. But you didn't allow that to happen to me. And I don't understand why now, in light of all that goodness, you caused me to suffer. Here's an important lesson to learn. When we ask the question, why does a good God allow suffering? Why does a good God allow evil? It presumes a very good God. It presumes a very good God. You say, how so? Well, what did Job have to do to raise the question? He had to list God's goodness in his life for basically an entire lifetime only then to raise the issue of why God allowed suffering. If the normal thing in our lives was just wickedness and evil and suffering and disaster, you wouldn't even ask the question because nothing would even stand out about it. It would be what we call normal, but it's not. When you ask the question, when anyone asks the question, why does a good God allow suffering? The irony in Job 3 points out, you have to presume a very good God. That's the only reason why suffering stands out, because he is so good. But all of that comes together, all those lessons come together to ask the question, why? This courtroom trial is about, does God have reasons for what he does, and are they good reasons? And in light of this now, we're going to have to learn some major lessons. I've tried to give some insights along the way, but there's just so much to cover that I've tried to boil down the rest of the chapters into four major ideas. Count them, four of them. All right, and here's the first of the four. (coughs) Job's friends and wisdom. They're a major character. They're They're a major component of the courtroom trial, Job and his friends. And his friends as we will see, what they say and how they fail will introduce to us the nature of wisdom. And so let's talk about Job's friends and wisdom. That's the first of the four things that we're going to talk about at this juncture. And at this point, I think it's helpful to clear up some misconceptions about the friends. I think we are rightfully biased against the friends. We think, man, they're just not nice. They're not kind. They're not helpful. They're wrong. And the best thing about them was when they kept their mouth shut. All of those things are absolutely true. But you can be harder on the friends than you need to be. You see, sometimes I think we think that the friends are dumb. They're just not intelligent. But that's not true. Job's friends are smart. Job's friends are smart. They can wax in Hebrew poetry. How many of you can wax in Hebrew poetry? 
How many of you can wax in English poetry? I mean, I mean, I can't. They can make rhymes and word plays and puns and, and talk deep philosophy with each other. They are smart people. Don't mistake for a moment just because they're wrong. They are very, very smart. And that's part of the point of the book. On top of that, they say true things. They say true things. Sometimes we think, well, Job's friends are wrong. That means every single thing they said is wrong. Uh-uh, uh-uh, that's not true. And you say, well, how do you know that? Because the New Testament quotes from Job's friends frequently and assumes that they're right. For example, in 1 Corinthians, Paul quotes from Job's friends. Paul quotes from Job's friends in Acts 17 on, at Athens. He quotes from Job's friends frequently, and he doesn't say they're wrong. He says they're right. Here's another footnote lesson to learn from this. You can have the truth and apply it wrongly. You can have the truth and apply it wrongly, and you're still wrong when that happens. Just because you have the truth, even if you apply it wrongly, you're wrong. You're not right. You are wrong. And that's what happened with Job's friends. They said a lot of right things about God. They said a lot of right things about his character. They said a lot of right things about a lot of things. But they came to the wrong conclusion. And that means they're what? Wrong. This is not to say we don't need the truth. No, you need the truth and you need more than that, which is you need a true application of the truth. We have the highest standard to live by. So Job's friends are smart, and they say true things, and on top of that, they're what we call specialists. They're what we call specialists. They represent, they embody certain academic disciplines, certain subject matters that even nowadays we revere. They are experts. Let's put it that way. They are experts. For example, Eliphaz, he's a historian. He says these kinds of things like, in chapter 4, verse 7, remember now. And when he says the phrase remember now, he's talking about all of history. He's a walking history channel. He's like, I know all history from Adam to now. Remember all of that. Whoever perished being innocent. And in chapter 5, verse 27, he says, behold this. We have investigated it. I've done my research. I am a research expert, and I know my history. This is so. Eliphaz is a historian par excellence. He is a historian par excellence. And then you got Bildad. Bildad, he's a scientist. He's a person who is an astute observer of nature. He talks about, can a papyrus grow without water, without a marsh? I mean, can rushes grow without water? He's talking about cause and effect. He's a scientist. And if you say, I need help remembering these things, well, here's one. Remember Bill Nye, the science guy? You got Bildad, the science guy. So <clears throat> you can help you remember. Bildad is a scientist. And then Zophar is the philosopher. Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? And Zophar thinks he has. That's the irony of the whole situation, but Zophar's a philosopher. And here you've got three guys who are experts in their field, experts in fields that even today we respect. There's a history channel for a reason. People respect science for a reason. People consult philosophers for a reason. They think these guys are smart. They know what they're talking about. They should be able to give us answers. But already in Job, the very first book of the Bible, we learn that's not the case. These three friends, they're all wrong. Eliphaz, he reasons along a historical pattern. He says this, it will all be good in the end if you repent. All things will work out for you in the end, Job, if you repent. Here's another lesson. Be careful how you use Romans 8.28. Be careful how you use Romans 8.28. You know what Job says to Eliphaz when he says that to him? He says this, Oh, that my pain was weighed. 
Eliphaz, you missed the whole point. I just wanted someone to suffer with me. I just wanted someone to say, I know how hard that must be, but you instead, Eliphaz, in your insensitivity, you just said, it's all going to be fine in the end. Don't worry. Be careful how you use Romans 8.28. It's a true statement, but it can be applied wrong and in the wrong time. Be careful. And Job presses Eliphaz a little bit more because Eliphaz doesn't even really know Romans 8.28 to the degree that we do. And And Job says to Eliphaz, you're reasoning along this historical pattern. How do you know that I fit in your pattern of a bad guy who then repents and gets restored? How do you know that I fit in that pattern? There could always be an exception to the rule. There are inherent limits of history. There are inherent limits of history, and Job exposes them. And then you got Bildad. And Bildad is a science guy, and he loves cause and effect. And he just says, Job, this is simple. This is science. Cause, you're bad. Effect, you suffer. The end. Easy. And Job says, no, you've assumed so many things about a complicated God. God is so much more complex than you. And therefore, you don't really understand cause and effect. Let me put it this way. Uh, there, there was a joke one time, and this is going to offend Peter, but, but that's okay. It's just a joke. So the... There, there was an s- experiment when somebody had a frog and said, jump, frog, and the frog jumped, and he, he cut off a leg and then said again, jump, frog, and the, and the frog struggled to jump, and he subsequently cut off all the legs of the frog and said, jump, frog, and obviously the frog did not jump. And the scientists concluded from this that, well, legs must be correlated with hearing because clearly the frog did not jump because it didn't hear me. There might be more factors involved in cause and effect than we realize. And what Job says to Bildad is, you think it's so simple. Life is a lot more complicated than you give it credit for. And God is a lot more complicated than you give it credit for. Science has limits because it can't factor in everything. It can't factor in everything. And then Zophar, he says, you're right, Job. God is complicated. He's so complicated, you're wrong. And Job says, "Uh, right back at you. God is so complicated, you're wrong. And this is the problem of philosophy. The problem of philosophy is people get too deep in over their head and they start to realize they don't know anything. They don't know anything. And so here you have three people who represent and are experts in disciplines that we respect today. And we think these things can give us answers. And in the time of Job, we already learned they can't. They can't give you the truth that you really need. They can't give you the answers you're really seeking for. They can tell you a lot of things, but they can't give you the answers that cause Job's friends to panic. It's not possible. They just have inherent limits, and they can't do it. Job's friends are smart. They say things that are true. They're specialists, but it doesn't do them very much good. And on top of that, they also have several tries. This is why Job is so long. The friends are given basically three tries, to try to come up with answers. And and the reason they have to come up with answers and the reason that they have three tries to do so is because they have to change all these approaches. You see, at first, his friends, that is Job's friends, they try to think about everything in heaven and on earth, everything from the natural to the supernatural. But then Job says, you don't know what's going on in heaven. Like, are you crazy? And so then Job's friends go, you know, Job, you're right. But I do know everything that's happening on earth. And I can own that. And Job says, you don't know everything that's happening on earth. And then Job's friends say, you're right, but I know everything relative to me. And you're wrong for that reason. And, and we can actually see that progression. And it kind of mirrors this. 
His friends in the first round, they're what we might call pre-modern. And then in the second round, when they think they know everything on earth, they're what? Modern. And then when they think everything relative to them, they think they're what? Postmodern. They walk through the whole gamut of human thinking. And this is indicative. You know, Eliphaz first says, I research everything. And then at the very end, this is what he says, and, and this just always makes me laugh. He says, he strips, Job, you know what you, you said? Tell me where I've sinned, and I'll tell you where you sinned. You've stripped men naked. Now, the translation in English is fine, but it kind of misses the point. Here's what it actually says. You strip men of who were naked of their clothes. How can you take clothes off of someone who has no clothes? Eliphaz, you don't make any sense. It's, his speech is filled with things like this where it makes no sense. It doesn't matter. He's postmodern. <laughs> He's just going to say whatever he feels like, and it's going to work. Bildad's logic at the very end. Even though at first he's talked about science and here's how nature works and cause and effect. He says, look, the moon has no brightness. The stars are not pure in his sight, so you're bad too. <laughs> Just because the sun don't shine so bright, you must be bad too. The end. That's his reasoning. It's irrational. It, it, it's not even coherent. It doesn't matter. We've entered postmodernism. So <clears throat> here are Job's friends, and they've tried several times They've tried several times to get it right. And sometimes new fads, new theories, new critical ideas, they emerge. And people think, oh, this must have the answer. This must have the solution. This must have the insight into life. And what's the, what does Job remind us? That's not even true. Job's friends, they go through the whole history of thought in this world, from modern, pre-modern to post-modern, and they don't know anything. They don't know anything don't get caught up in the fads of thinking of this world. They are bankrupt. And along that line then, we know this. Job's friends might have been smart. They might have tried several things. They might have been specialists. They might have even said things that were true, but they had no success. They had no success. In fact, it just, everything they said just caused things to be worse. Just caused things to be worse. Eliphaz, he's irrational. We already talked about him. He's talking about how Job took clothes off of people who have no clothes. It makes no sense. He's irrational. That's the end of human reasoning. It makes you irrational. And Bildad, the science guy, and he just says, look, you're trapped, Job. Cause and effect. You're a maggot. You're a son of man. You're a worm. It's over for you. That's what life has to offer. You know, sometimes, and here's another footnote thought, People often use science and the question of evil to try to erase God, to try to disprove God. And they think, we won, we won, great. No, you just caused a bigger problem. Because if there is no God and everything really is cause and effect, how are you going to turn your life around? How are you going to actually have transformation and change when cause and effect dictates there is no what? Change. How are you going to have hope that something's going to turn out better when you're stuck in this path of cause and effect and a vicious cycle that only has one direction and there is no ability to alter it? The disaster of removing God through the problem of evil only makes the problem of evil greater because now you have no opportunity to solve it. You have locked yourself in hopelessness. And in evangelism, we need to remind people of that. That when they're so happy, oh yeah, see, this justifies my atheism. You shouldn't be happy. Now you're trapped. You're really stuck. And Bildad 
reminds us of that. He says, Job, all that's left for you, you're a worm. You're going to die. That's it. That's the way it's going to work. It's, you're over. It's fatalistic hopelessness. And if Eliphaz is irrational and Bildad is hopeless, Zophar leaves us with delusionality. Zophar says, this is the wicked portion from God, even the heritage decreed to him by God. Zophar asserts to Job, Job, the only way I can see out of this is this. God always does justice in this life. Every sin that's ever been committed in this life, he judges it. That's what he says in Job 20. And then Job, in response in Job 21, it's hilarious. He says, Zophar, let me tell you a chapter and a half why that is the most ridiculous thing on the planet, that God always gets justice in this life. Everything from a parking ticket to people cutting you off, they get what they deserve in this life. you got to be crazy. Zophar is crazy. He's delusional. And here's what happens. You think human wisdom is so smart. You think human wisdom is going to get you so far. Here's what it reduces you to. Irrationality, hopelessness, and delusional. Being delusional. That's what it reduces you to. That's where Job's friends end up. There are no answers in human wisdom. Let me put it this way. It doesn't make things better. It just makes things worse. It just makes things worse. And that's what Job realizes. He actually understands that. He understands that. And he says, friends, upon reflecting on this, here's what we've lost, the fear of God. We've lost the fear of God. In Job chapter 28, Job makes these kinds of conclusions. And in Job 28, on one hand, Job says, man has tremendous technological ability. Man has tremendous smarts and skills to manipulate creation. He, in Job 28, verse 3, he talks about how man puts an end to the darkness because he can bring in light. One of the reasons that we think we're technologically advanced in our society is because we can turn on the switch and there are lights. And Job says, well, we had that too. We could do that. And, and Job says, on top of that, man, even as he digs in mines to mine precious minerals and jewels, he can swing up and down to get through the shaft. What would we call going, people going up and down a shaft? That's a form of an elevator. Sometimes we think we have advanced technology because ding, third floor. Job's like, ding, I got third floor too. Jo I mean, this Job says, I got the technology, Job 28 verse 4. And then on top of that, Job says, man can put his hand to the flinty rock and overturn a mountain. What is that kind of idea? Man can cause things to blow up, to explode. What is the mark of human technology? We can blow things up. Job says, we could do that too. Back in the day, man is capable of all kinds of technology, even from the earliest day. But here's what Job asks. Even though you have all this technology, even though you have all these skills and abilities, and he's not denying that. Verse 12 of 28, where is wisdom found? And he sh starts to show, man can't find it. It's outside of him. Because wisdom, true wisdom, has to know everything in this creation. It has to thereby stand outside of this creation of which man is a part. You can't find it. And you can't buy it. You can't buy it because what could you really exchange of equal value and power to wisdom? You don't have that kind of resource. You don't have that kind of resource. You don't have anything that is as valuable as wisdom. And you can't produce it either because you don't have the skill to produce wisdom on your own. Man has all this tech. Man has all these smarts, so to speak. But in the end, None of them can help you find wisdom. And that's been proven, by the way, in context. 
because none of Job's friends found wisdom. Sometimes we think, oh, I got my technology. I'm so cool. Like I can tell Siri, turn on the lights and it turns on the lights and order me a pizza and it orders me a pizza. And you can even ask Siri, I tried, how can you be saved? And Siri will give you an answer. Of course, the answer will send you to hell, but it will give you an answer. And we think, oh, we got all this technology. It's amazing. It won't get you anywhere. It won't get you anywhere. Because you on your own can't find wisdom. We just don't have the ability. But God does. God searched it all out. He's seen it from beginning to end. And he's grounded it in creation. He's the one who made it. He knows what he's talking about. And that's why Job concludes, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. You want to know why? Because when you really are scared of someone, so extremely terrified of someone, there's an extreme surrender that takes place. When you are afraid for your life, you don't negotiate. You don't just say, well, let's do a qualification here. Let's change this around. Let's, let's make a reservation here. You don't argue back. You just do what they say. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because when you really have that kind of fear of God and you do what he says, for the first time in your existence, you actually listen and do what the only one who knows what wisdom is without ever tainting it with your own understanding. That's when you become wise. The reason the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom is because when you fear God and you just do what he says and you think what he thinks, you actually know and think and do what the only one who knows wisdom is without ever qualifying it, without ever bringing your own ideology into it. For that point, you actually have pure wisdom because you listen to the only one who knows what he's talking about. You need to fear him. We said that Job is the introduction to the Bible, and it really is because it tells you why you need a Bible. Why do we need God's word? Here's what Job has thus proved through Job's friends. It has proved, it has proved you are lost. We are lost and in the dark. We have no clue how to handle life. Job's friends know that. They have shown that. And let me just put it this way. None of Job's friends, none of them have ever said, well, you know what, Job? You know, I I think, I just surmised that it's because God in heaven was having a convo with Satan. And that's why you're in the problem that you're in. Because God had this conversation with Satan and God's purposes are going to be sustained. So you, you did a great job there and just hang in there. None of them say anything remotely close to that. Why? Because for them to know that, where would they have to have been? In heaven. And that's the point. There are some things you just can't know unless heaven shows you unless heaven tells you. We are in the dark. We cannot know. It is impossible for us to grasp these things. The only way that you can know is if heaven reveals it, and it has revealed it in one book. This one right here, the word of God. That's what Job points out. And you have to have this book. If you don't, you will be lost because you can never figure it out. You need this book. You need every word of it because otherwise you will never have a clue. This has the information you cannot have 
but that you need. This is the information that you cannot have on your own, but that you desperately need. And this not only tells you why you need a Bible, this tells you how you approach it with the fear of God. God knows what he's talking about. So we don't come to the text saying, well, you know, this makes better sense to me. I think this is a much better idea, God. Let me qualify that. Let me, let me, let me put some spin on that. No, you don't. You come with the fear of God because he knows what he's talking about. So when he speaks, we listen. And when he says to do, we do. It's that simple because he's the expert and we clearly are whatever the opposite of an expert is, is. That's us. Job's friends are wrong. And we learn a lot about wisdom through them. And we learn why God in part is right. Here's a simple reason. We just don't even know enough to condemn him. We don't even know enough to make an accusation. We're in the dark. We're clueless. So he's right. Well, there's another aspect here that we need to learn. This is the second thing, and that is the gospel. The gospel. Job, part of what happens in these chapters is the gospel. What, what occurs is that Job is really struggling. His friends are telling him, you're wrong. You've got to repent. You must have sinned somewhere. And he's saying, that's not true. I didn't do that. And they are backing him into a corner because they are insisting that is the case. And then they tell Job, Job, if, if you're not wrong, give us an alternative. What's the other option? What is the alternative? And Job is contemplating, what is the alternative? What is the other option? And he says, I don't know. I don't know why God is doing this. I'm confused. And Job, an expert in suffering, in his confusion, in his desperation, under so much pressure, he starts to say things like this, God, I I don't know what's going on. I'm confused. But if you did a certain thing, if you would do this or that, then no matter what, I know you would be right. He starts to make wishes wishes that if God would do something, do certain things, then no matter what, he knows everything can and be, will be made right. This is kind of like a puzzle. Have you, have you ever done a puzzle where you need to put certain pieces in certain places, and once you do that, everything kind of falls into place? That's what Job is saying here. If God, if you would just do certain things, everything I know will fall into place. So Job has these wishes, and what are the nature of these wishes that an expert in suffering would have to make God right? Well, let's cover three of them. Here's the first one. Job says in Job 7.21, Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? Job wants forgiveness. That's his first wish. Forgiveness of sin. Real forgiveness. Everlasting forgiveness. This is in response to Eliphaz who says to Job, Hey, everything's going to be good in the end. And Job says, It doesn't feel like it's going to be good. And it feels like God's a bully, and he's picking on me. But Job says, you know what? I wouldn't feel this way. I wouldn't think this way if God would forgive sin. Because if he forgives sin, I know it will all be worked out in the end. Why? Because God dealt with the biggest, most critical issue. And so I know it will be worked out in the end. And we know from the rest of the scripture, Job's wish was what? Granted. Wish Granted, God does forgive sins. He does pass over. He does pardon, and he is right. And, and sometimes when we think, man, God just feels like you're picking on me, we need to remember this. For eternity, we're not going to say, God, why did you pick on me? We're going to say this, God, why did you pick 
me. That's what we're going to say. Because God will take care of everything because he takes care of the issue of sin. Job wished for forgiveness of sins. Here's a second wish. Here's a second wish. He said, For he is not a man as I am that I may answer him, that we may go into court together, because there is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. Bildad has told Job, Hey, cause and effect. You're wrong. That's what's happening. And Job has come back to Bildad and said, No, God is more complicated. But this raises a problem. God is so complicated, Job feels like God would never be on his side and always out-argue him. It's like what I tell some people. There are such smart people at the Master's University that if I was to argue with them, they would always be able to out-debate me. Even if I said, let's talk about if my name is Abner, they would be able to figure out a way to outsmart me. And even though it is true that my name is Abner, it really is true, they would prove that it's not (laughs) just because they're so smart. And Job says, that's how I feel about God. I don't think he's on my side. And I think he's so smart. Even if I was to go up into heaven and talk with him about this, he'll just bully me down. And here's what Job says. But God, if you did this one thing, if you did this one thing, I know you would be fair and right and good and on my side. Provide me an umpire. That's another word for a mediator a mediator, who may lay his hand upon us both. Now, let's consider that phrase carefully. You don't just lay your hand on God because you're buddy buddies. You don't just give him a nice pat on the head, so to speak, because your hand will fall off. To put your hand on God means that you have to be equal with God. And since there is only one God, that means you have to be God. To lay your hand on both That's God and Job. To put your hand around Job means that you have to be his peer too, which means that you have to not just be God, but also a man. Job says this is the most ridiculous wish on the planet, but it would resolve everything if you would just provide a God-man. Please, if you would do that, I'm just wishing here. I don't know this is going to happen, but if you would provide one of those, I know you're on my side. And what does the Bible say? Wish granted. Job, he, there is a mediator. He is God and man. And in his humanity, he empathizes with us in our suffering more than we ever could understand. And that is precisely why in Romans 8, it says this, if God before us, who can then be what? Against us. God is on our side. He has given us that mediator. Job, your wish is granted. Sometimes we think, maybe God isn't for me. Maybe God is against me sure feels like it in my suffering. Remember Job's wish. If God provides us a mediator who understands, who is interceding on our behalf, then he is for us. Then he is for us without a shadow of a doubt, and everything else can and will be resolved. Well, there's a third wish. Third wish. Job says this, oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath returns to you, that you would set a limit for me and remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the work of your hands. Job is talking with Zophar who says, God's amazing, God's awesome. And Job says, yes, he is. He's even more awesome than you said he was. But then he starts to realize if God is so powerful, if God is so amazing, if God can do these incredible, miraculous things, why can't he use his power for good? 
And he says, here would be the ultimate good that normally when people live, they die. But maybe he can make the dead what? Live. What was Job asking for? A resurrection, but not any kind of resurrection. He wanted to say it this way. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the work of your hands. I want to be resurrected in a way that not only restores my body and restores my soul, so to speak, but that actually fulfills my relationship with God. If you could perform that miracle, God, which is nothing short of a miracle, then I know you use your power for good. And I know without a shadow of a doubt, you are good. Everything can and will be resolved. And what does the rest of the Bible say? Wish granted. What does 1 Thessalonians 4 remind us? That those who are dead in Christ, they will rise up, be caught with God in the air, and so they will be with the Lord always. Job, your wish is answered. People want to know, what if God was so good and so powerful, how does he handle sin in this world? Can he, how is that right that he can do what he does? The answer is simply this, the resurrection. The resurrection, it makes all things right. It is the utmost use of all power for good. Job knew the answer, but he wished for it. And in the end, it came true. And yes, Job knows that his Redeemer lives. He knows that. Job 19, he says it. Not just that he wishes for it, he knows. But here's the question he has. When I meet my Redeemer in heaven, what exactly is going to take place? How exactly is he going to help me? How exactly is God going to help me? Will it all work out this way? Job wishes that it does. He's not sure. And even Elihu comments on this later on. Elihu in Job 33, he says this. If there is an angel as a mediator for him, that guy is one out of a thousand. That's Elihu's way of saying this. Job, what you're wishing for is like winning the lottery. It's basically impossible. It's completely implausible. It is absolutely exceptional. But in the context, Elihu says, but Job, you never know what God might do. You never know what God might do. Put it this way. Job, be careful what you wish for because you might get it. And with that, the whole book of Job launches toward the gospel. Because here's what Job wants in his heart of hearts. And he says, God, if you would do these things, I know without a shadow of a doubt, you are right. I wish that you would forgive me through the power of a mediator that is God-man by virtue of a resurrection from the dead. Um, I think that kind of sounds like the gospel. Yes? Job wished for that. And the whole Bible answers that. And it shows that God is right. Again, Job didn't know all this was going to happen. And that's a, that reality makes his conclusions all the more valuable. Take it from an expert on suffering. These are the key puzzle pieces you need to resolve suffering. If God does these things, no matter what, everything can and will be resolved. God is right. And that's what we need to apply in our suffering. We need to remember this. The gospel, which we often take for granted, in Elihu's own words, it's like winning the lottery. That's how impossible it is. That's how far-fetched it is. Job thinks these are wishes. They're far-fetched. They're out there. I just hope God would do something like this. We know he does. He goes out of his way to make something far, 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 far less likely than winning the lottery 
happen. He makes the impossible actual. How much more should we be able to trust him that he's in this for our good when he makes the impossible actual, when he makes the impossible a fact? We should trust him. That's what we need to learn in our suffering. God is right. You know why? Because he does everything to make him right. He does everything to make him right, and he proves that in the gospel. Well, there's a third lesson we need to know, and that third lesson is about self-righteousness in suffering. That lesson is about Job. In the courtroom so far, we've talked a lot about Job's friends. We've even hinted a little bit about God, but what about Job? He's another big player in this courtroom on earth. What happened to him? Is he right? And here's what we need to realize. Job at first was blameless. Why? Because the Bible told us so. But as Job goes through talking with his friends, and he is provoked, his friends are not nice, he starts to lose his integrity. Or you could actually put it this way, he clings to his integrity too much to the point where he becomes arrogant and he becomes overconfident. In Job 27, for example, he says to God, God, if, if I did anything wrong, you could judge me, but I didn't. What? Like, that's, that's going too far. He, he clings to his righteousness as if that is justifying him in everything. And this is where Elihu comes in. Elihu, his role is to prepare the way for God and to give analysis on what just took place in the discussion between Job and his friends. And Elihu is right. <coughs> He's not going to be like Job's friends, and, and he makes that clear. And, and the way he distinguishes himself from his friends who are so arrogant and don't listen, who, who are proud and, and abrasive, his difference from all of them in those ways makes him stand out. And let me just show you two ways that that happens. One, he rejects falsehood. I even paid a close attention to you, and he's talking to Job's friends. There was no one who refuted Job. Elihu doesn't stick with an old lie, even if everyone is doing it. He doesn't stick with an old lie, even if everyone is doing it. He says, I reject falsehood. You want to have good counseling? Make it based on the truth, not a fad, not on people's opinion. Make it stick with the truth. But on the other hand, here is what Elihu says too. In Job 33, 6, he says, Behold, I belong to God like you. I too have been formed out of the clay. Here's what he tells Job. Job, I'm on your side. I'm not above you. I'm not the smarter guy. I'm not any of those things. I'm just a piece of clay like you are. He's humble. I too belong to God. I'm accountable to him like you are. I'm on your side. I'm not above you. I'm alongside of you. In counseling somebody, in hearing their griefs, and encouraging them, and in discipleship, we don't just come to people like we're the guru. We're just one of everybody here. That's the mentality. That's what's supposed to happen. And Elihu, by actually being righteous in the way he approached Job, shows he's not like the other guys. And what he says will not be like the other guys. And what does Elihu point out? to Job. Here's what he says. Job, I've listened to you, and here's the first problem. You really have a demanding attitude of God. You have a demanding attitude 
of God. Here's what he says. Why do you complain against him? For he does not give an account of all his doings. Job, why do you demand? Why do you contend with God? You got to answer me. You got to answer me. You got to do this. You got to do that. Job, you've got everything backwards. God doesn't have to answer to you. You have to answer to God. And even more, Elihu rebukes Job and says, you never know what God can do. God, you, God can do all kinds of things and work in your life in ways that you don't expect. Here you're demanding God to give an answer. And God does sometimes give an answer through revelation. But here's what Elihu says in Job chapter 33. He says, but sometimes God works through pain. He chastises you and disciplines you as you lie on your bed in pain. And he causes you to understand what is really meaningful in life. And he causes you to understand what you really should have done. This is James 1 before James 1, yes? And here's what Elihu's trying to point out to Job. Job, you keep yelling at God for, to answer you, but the irony might be this. He already has. He already is. And that just reflects a very poor attitude. Sometimes in suffering, we can be very demanding of God. And we don't really have the right. There's a difference between having questions for God and questioning God. Having a question for God is when we say, I don't understand God, help me. Questioning God is becoming a skeptic and saying, you're wrong. I assume you're wrong. Along that very line, Elihu says, you know, Job, this demanding attitude, you know where it comes from? It's because you don't give God the benefit of the doubt. You always assume the worst. And Elihu starts to talk about in Job 34, he says to Job, Job, based on God's standard of justice, if you're really going to think about fair, if you're really going to think about just, God owns everything and we owe God everything. So if God takes away something from us, technically he's still fair. And even more, God in life, yeah, he doesn't always judge people in this world and make everything right in our lifetime, but you have to admit, he does judge kings and princes. He does judge people. That does happen. He has a track record of doing things correctly. And this is what Job says, or Elihu says to Job, rather. So in light of that, in light of the fact that God ultimately is right, and in light of the fact that God has this track record, when God keeps quiet, who then can condemn? Sometimes God is quiet, and he doesn't look like he's intervening, and it looks like things are hidden away. You can't condemn even then. You should have given him the benefit of the doubt. He's proven himself over and over. And Elihu's point is, Job, you've given the benefit of the doubt for, to people with far less credentials, with far less reasons you should have given the benefit of the doubt to God. Sometimes it's strange as believers, when there is suffering, we sometimes assume the worst of God. When we have no reason to do so, and when we objectively know that can't even be true. But that all comes from an underlying attitude that Elihu points out, and that is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. He says to Job, do you think this is according to justice? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? But you are full of judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice take hold of you. Elihu's point is this. Job, here's where you veered into. You really thought you were better than everybody 
else. And because you thought you were better than everybody else, you thought, I don't deserve this because I'm better than everybody else. And so that's why you doubted God, and that's why you make demands. People who don't believe they deserve anything don't make demands. People who believe they are deserving, they will make what? Demands. And Elihu says, Job, this is where you've gone terribly wrong. You've become self-righteous. And he says to Job, and you have no right to be. You have no right to be. You can't question God. You just don't understand what he's doing. And to illustrate this, Elihu uses a thunderstorm. He uses a thunderstorm and says, Job, do you really understand what's going on in a thunderstorm? If you, understand, if you don't even understand what's going on in a thunderstorm, how much more do you not understand your life? as opposed to just one small, minuscule event of life. And, and Elihu approaches it this way. He says, Job, when does a thunderstorm start? And we would say, well, a thunderstorm starts, thunder, lightning, rain, duh, obvious. And Elihu says, no, that's not true. A thunderstorm starts when God, as it says here in verse 27 of chapter 36, he draws up the water. It starts with evaporation. And here's Elihu's point to Job. God is already working when you don't even see it. God is already working when you don't even see it. How do you really think you really know what God is doing? And Elihu talks about the end, what is the outcome of a thunderstorm. And we know, yeah, he covers the depths of the sea, verses 30 and 31 of chapter 36. But he also says this, he also judges people by a thunderstorm. And you say, really? Like, how does he control and give verdicts about people through a thunderstorm? Have you ever watched a game that had a rain delay or even was canceled? because of a thunderstorm? Have you ever been in a situation when your flight was canceled because of a thunderstorm? God used the thunderstorm, yes, to provide water, but he also used it to control travel patterns and athletic outcomes. He can do all of that. Here, we just think suffering has to work one way or a thunderstorm has to work one way. God can use it for all kinds of things, things that we don't even think about. Let me put it this way. Have you ever heard of the law of unintended consequences? Yes? For God, all consequences are intended. They're all intended. Job, you just don't understand. And, and thunderstorms, they can appear so powerful and mighty, but God is in control of them. We sometimes think that our suffering is out of control, but God is in control of this. Job, you don't know anything about a thunderstorm and what God can do with it. What makes you think that you can understand your suffering and come to conclusions about God? And that's exactly what Elihu concludes with. God thunders with his voice wondrously, doing miraculous things which we cannot comprehend. And Elihu reminds Job, even with a minuscule thunderstorm, it changes direction, turning around by his guidance, that it may do whatever he commands it on the face of the inhabited earth, whether for correction or for his world or for his loving kindness, he causes it to happen. God can do so many different things. What gives you the right to say that I know everything God is doing and he's doing it wrong? Elihu says to Job, teach us then, what shall we say to him? No, here's the truth. We cannot arrange our case because of darkness. We're in the dark. How can you accuse God, Job? How can you accuse God? In our suffering, sometimes we can have a very demanding attitude of God. And we can assume the worst of God. And that's because deep down inside, even though we know it's wrong, we believe we deserve better. We deserve better than this. God owes us something. Well, that's just wrong. And you're not right 
just like Job is not right in believing this, especially since we don't even understand one event and all that God can do in one simple event, a rainstorm. How much more can God do in all of the complexity of the suffering of your life? How dare we raise an accusation against God when we have no evidence? This is the most faulty lawsuit of all. And we need to learn that. And Job learned the hard way. God is right. I'm wrong. God is right. I am wrong. Well, there's one more person in this courtroom, and that's God. And he shows up. And there's a reason why he shows up. It's because he needs to prove that he is right. Not just that, hey, I can't accuse God, because that might still mean that he's wrong. Or there are hints of how he could become right in the gospel. No, he needs to establish without question, without doubt, that he is right. And so God enters the fray. He enters the fray, and his overall strategy is simply this. Job and everybody here, including myself, what we don't have is what God has, and it proves him right. What we don't have is what God has, and it proves him right. And the first way that God demonstrates this is that God knows better. God knows better. How often is it that when we we jump to conclusions about somebody, but then when we get all the facts, we say, oh, that kind of made a lot more sense. And God says, let me give you some of the facts. And he starts asking Job questions. And he asks a series of kinds of questions. He says, Job, do you know what things are? On what were the world's bases sunk? Like what causes the earth to be suspended in space? Do you know that? No. He asks a question of how. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning? The question is simply this. Do you set your alarm clock so that it goes off so that you go outside and say, morning, and it happens. Do you know how to do that? Not setting your alarm clock, but actually commanding in the morning. No. Do you know not only what and how? Job, do you know where? Have you ever entered the springs of the sea? Do you know how and where all the water comes from? Why? Do you know, Job, why? Have you entered the storehouse of snow where I have purposed them for a specific reason? This again alludes to what Elihu was saying. Do you know why? And Job says, no. Well, how about when? Do you control time? Do you lead the constellations around so that there's the passing of seasons and time? And Job says, no. Notice the language here. What, how, where, why, and when? What is the one question God doesn't ask? Who? Why? Simple. Because Job knows who. Knows all those answers. Who knows all those answers? God. And God's point to Job is, that should have been enough. I'm the one who has all the answers. I know better. And so you should have trusted me this whole time. Now, Job could have come back and said, but God, you were testing me on really trivial information. I mean, what does knowing about the constellations have to do with anything about solving life? And so God says, okay, fine. I'll give you some pertinent information. I have knowledge that causes life and death. Do you have that knowledge? Do you, are you the one who knows and can command someone to give birth or not? Well, no. Do you have authority? Does creation come and bow to you? No. Do you know how to control the animals on the earth? No. Do you know how to control the birds in heaven who laugh at you? No. God says, I do. I know all of those things. I have the pertinent knowledge. Job, you just don't know enough to actually manage this world. I do. And that's why I'm right. I know better. 
But here's another way that God approaches it. He says he controls better. <coughs> he controls better. And you might wonder, why does God have to go with round two with Job and, and a whole slew of other examples, not just because they're cool, but because Job says to God, I will be silent. Now, that sounds really spiritual. I will be silent before God. But what he's really doing in court is pleading the fifth. Is that the right terminology there? I'm not going to say anything. And what does God want Job to say? Not just, I'm going to be silent, but I am wrong, and God, you are right. That's what he has to get Job to say. So he says, we're going to go through round two of this interrogation. And in doing so, God wants to prove that he controls better. And here, God addresses the issue that I think we often talk about. We often say, when we look at some situation in life, oh, if I was there, I would have done it this way. I can do it better. How often do we say that? And sometimes we feel that way to God. Well, if I was God and I was in my life, I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't do that. Can you do it better? And that's the issue that God raises with Job. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you do something to override what I have done so that you can do it better and condemn me that you could be justified? Is that what you're going to do, Job? And so God introduces Job to two animals to see if he can control them. And one is the behemoth. And what is a behemoth? Some people say, you know, it's a hippopotamus or rhinoceros or some big thing like that. And it's not. And you say, how do you know? Well, not only by virtue of the description, but we have motifs. We have reliefs of people in the ancient world killing these animals. So if God says to Job, can you kill this? Job could have said what? Sure. I mean, we got like television shows where you got Hippopotamus Dundee or whatever, and he's killing those things. He could have said that, and the argument would have fallen apart. The point is that this can't happen. And so this is a dinosaur-like creature, but it's not just that you need to know what it is. You need to know what the name means. The word behemoth in Hebrew actually means super cow. Super cow. Okay, like a, like a big cow. Massive cow super cow. And you say, why? Why does God introduce this super cow? Because throughout the book of Job, Job and his friends are making fun of each other. I mean, they're, they're, they're pretty upset with each other. And they're saying, look at the cows. They will teach you. And then Job says, you're as dumb as a cow. And then another person says, no, Job, you're as dumb as a cow. So God just enters the fray and says, what about the super cow? <laughs> what are you going to do with super cow? And here's what you learn. Job, you don't have enough strength at all to wrestle with a super cow. What makes you ever think you could do it better? You don't even have enough raw might to actually do anything against this thing. How much more do you think it would take to actually control the world? And so he, along that line, he introduces another character, the Leviathan, which is, again, another dinosaur for the reasons that I listed before. But what about its name? The Leviathan is used throughout Scripture as the mascot <coughs> For Satan, as the mascot or the representative animal for evil. And here's God's question to Job. Job, can you even control evil's mascot? How much more do you think you can really control evil itself? To put it in kind of a humorous way, I couldn't even beat Monty the Mustang of the Masters University in basketball. How much more do you think I'm going to lose to the entire basketball team? God says to Job, you can't even control Leviathan. You can't. In fact, 
you can't wow it. You can't. It's just really funny. God says, Do you, will it speak soft words to you? The idea is, will, will, is the Leviathan just going to come under your control because it falls in love with you? And the answer is no, no, no. And then in the end, it says that, Job, are you going to pierce it with a, with a fish hook? And we don't even know if that's the right translation of the word in Hebrew because we don't know what that word means. But it doesn't matter because the point of it is how it sounds. Here's what, how the word in Hebrew sounds. Tzu. That's what it sounds like. Because what is God saying? When you try to attack that thing, it's just going to go, bonk, bonk. and all you've done is made the Leviathan what? Mad. Job, you don't make things better. You just make things what? Worse. Let's be clear. People don't make things better. You think I could do it better than God. I got the power. I got the smarts. And God says, you're ridiculous. You can't even control Satan's mascot. And you just make it angry and you make things worse. But God is right. I have that control. And no one says I should repay them because I have no fault. And this language of who has given me that I should repay launches an entire biblical theology throughout the rest of the Bible where we don't just see that God is right, he makes right. Listen to Isaiah 40, verse 13. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor it has informed him that he might inform back? Where have we heard that language from the book of Job? Isaiah is building on Job. And in Isaiah, in this passage, Isaiah 40, God, for the first time in the Bible, uses the word gospel. Uses the word gospel. And on top of that, in Isaiah 40 through 55, we know God is talking about his suffering servant. He is talking about the gospel that makes people right. And thus, it moves from there to the book of Romans, which talks about the gospel in God's plan. Gospel in God's plan, and that God is both just and the justifier. He is right, and he makes people what? Right. Just like Job wished for, and at the conclusion of that whole discussion, what does Paul say? For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him that it may be back, paid back to him again? Where have we heard that language before? The book of Job. And Paul says to Job, God is right, and he makes people right. All your wishes are granted. You had no right to accuse God. God is right. And with that, Job launches the entire Bible, doesn't it? All the way to the book of Romans, and that's very important to see by way of epilogue. You see, at the very end, Job repents. He actually says, I reject everything I said, and God, you are right. I get it. You are right. You have all the power. You have all the knowledge. You do what is right. And God restores Job. And there's some tensions in this. On one hand, it's very nice that Job gets his money back, his family back, everything back. But you have to ask, if he just got everything back, why did God take it away to begin with? It seems random. What, what, God's good, but what is going on here? And then this is the way the book of Job ends. He what? He's dead. The end. How is this good? How is this a good ending? I mean, he's dead full of days. Okay, great. But how is this good? How is this a good ending? How is this not random? This is the best ending of all because what did Job want? I want to meet the Redeemer that I know who what? Lives. And I wish God would forgive sins and I wish he would provide me such and such a mediator and I wish he would resurrect me. What does he learn the moment he enters into heaven? Wish granted. And he sees what the Bible lays out, that God is right and not only is he right, but he makes people what? Right. 
That's the best ending of all, and that really proves that Job is the perfect introduction to Scripture because it launches us into it, and it tells us why we need our Bible, and it tells us what the Bible is ultimately about, that God, no matter what, is right, and he makes people right, and that's our hope. That's the only way we can get resolution in this life that is filled with sin and suffering. It is beautiful. And so Job is the perfect introduction to the whole Bible because it shows the nature and necessity of the gospel. Thank you for your time.